I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. That's right, Hebrews 13. It's the last chapter. We have been in the book of Hebrews. Now this is, I think, uh, like around the 30th, 30th message in the study. Today we look at Hebrews 13 as we get into the last chapter of really of application of the rest of the entirety of the book. And uh, this morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. In honor of God's, if you can stand on your head, do that. In honor of God's word, let's read the passage together. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual, immoral, and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Father, for this study of Hebrews. Uh, just a, a feast, uh, a Christ-centered feast for the soul. And Father, as we get into this last chapter, uh, we begin to see how this feast is supposed to uh, nourish us to live a certain kind of way, uh, to bring you glory in, in how we um, live, how we love, how we uh, treat people, one another, uh, people in the world, uh, people in our homes. Father, we, we ask now that your spirit would be our, our teacher. Come Holy Spirit and uh, fill us with your presence. Fill us, Father, with your, your word. Fill us, Father, with your power. We ask these things in Jesus' name, for Jesus' glory. Amen. Word has gotten back to the Apostle Paul that his son in the faith, Timothy, is, is struggling. As a, a father, of, as a spiritual father of Timothy, this obviously brings deep concern to the apostle. Paul had assigned him the pastoral post at the church in Ephesus. And man, what a season those first years were in, in Ephesus. When you read the scriptures, it's it's like revival every day. I mean, amazing things are taking place. But the early days of miracles and mass conversions, well, they're just a memory now. Seems like most people in the church in Ephesus are talking about the good old days. Now things have gotten tough. Things have gotten difficult for the church, both inside the church and Outside, outside the, the church, the pagan temples of the city are, are flourishing. How frustrating it is to see the, the pagan temples flourish while the church diminishes. The Roman government has been pressing down on any unsanctioned religion, which means Christianity. And uh, they have made it nearly impossible for the church to flourish, at least the gathering of outsiders wanting to be a part of that kind of oppression. But inside the church, the members are busy. They're, they're serving. The volunteer base is solid. They were theologically sound, precise in what they believed in their doctrine. And it seemed, however, that their, that their service and their worship was just kind of on autopilot. 
They're busy, but something's wrong. Something's wrong. And then the letter comes. And they open this letter. It's to be read in church, and it's from the Lord himself, the Lord of the church. And he diagnoses the problem with that particular congregation. And he says to them, you have lost your first love. It's as simple as that. You've just lost your first love. You're still busy. You believe the right things, but your heart's not there. And so Paul writes one of his very last letters, actually the last letter, to encourage this weary pastor as a spiritual father to a son. What do you say in that kind of situation, you know? Is there a ministry strategy that Paul can give to his son in the faith? Is there maybe some kind of cool program? I mean, he's familiar with with a network of churches, and so maybe he's seen things that have worked in other churches that you go, oh man, you know what? What's happening right now over in Colossae? You ought to give that a go. I mean, they're rocking it. Isn't there something that you could pass along? Maybe just a good book or a podcast. Maybe there's a conference that Timothy could go to. Something to encourage his soul. It's got to be something, right? And so the gristled old apostle thinks hard. And he lights a candle. And he takes his quill. And he writes, Dear Timothy. And then he says this Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and, and careful, precise instruction. Preach the word. Now, can you imagine Timothy uh, reading that and thinking out loud in his frustration, come on, Paul, I mean, I've been doing that. I've been doing that. I've been preaching the gospel week in and week out. It doesn't seem to be working. Don't you have a new strategy? Is there some kind of cool program? That maybe you could pass along, right? There's got to be something other than preach the word. I've been doing that. And Paul redoubles Timothy. Preach the word. If you want to see renewal, if you want to see love return, and you want to see people flourish, keep the gospel in front of the people. What does Paul mean when he says, do it in season and out of season? What does he mean by that? Is, is church sort of like a football season where we have an off season? And then there's the season where we actually play the games. Is it, is it like that? Well, maybe, I mean, a little bit. It's something like that. But it's, it's more likely that he has an agricultural image in his mind. This is obviously that kind of culture. And so I believe what he means is that there are times in ministry where you go through seasons, much like a farmer does. There are seasons of harvest, and there are seasons of dormancy. There are seasons of drought. There are seasons of pestilence. There are seasons when the workers are few. And we will have seasons. We will have seasons when people are not responsive to the gospel. You will have seasons that things that used to work stop working. You will have seasons when, when the heart's passion and love of people grow stale. In fact, in the last days, Jesus said the love of most will grow cold. This is what is meant, I believe, by out of season, in season and out of season. 
But he says this, the gospel still has to be proclaimed no matter what the season is. The work done in the winter is just as important to produce the harvest that will come in the summer. Now what we know from our study of Hebrews is that it is written to some beat down and worn out Christians at this point. Right? It is definitely an out of season time here in the book of Hebrews. Following Jesus has taken a toll on these people. They are in a season when the soil for planting gospel seed has become very hard. People are not only not responsive to the gospel, that they're also hostile to the gospel. And they have taken out their hostility on these weary saints. And these dear ancient brothers and sisters have suffered because of that. They suffered much loss. They've, they've lost a family. They've lost friends. They've lost lands. They've lost homes. They've lost their inheritances. They've lost jobs. And we know that they're weary and exhausted because the entire book is aimed at, ta at talking them off the ledge from just giving up. These are weary saints. Weary saints. You know that they have prayed hard. You know that they have, right? They prayed hard. They prayed often. And it seems like the harder they pray that uh, the, the suffering just kind of escalates. And they're like, well, what is going on here? Where is God? Why does he not answer our prayers for relief? I pray for relief from the heat, and all I get is fuel on the fire. You ever been there? And so what we find here in Hebrews 13 is a, is a strategy for church renewal in the midst of a spiritual drought. To, to the midst of the people, could you imagine saying to people, all right, it's time to get excited about the things of God when they're like going, you know, I, I'm just trying to hold on. I'm just trying to make it through another day. And yet that's exactly what we find here in the book of Hebrews. Is that timely? We, we are living in a, a day and age that the philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age. The word secular or, or secularism gets thrown around in church circles basically to include anything that, that's not, you know, Christian. You know, you got Christian music, you got secular music, and that, that kind of uh, division between uh, the sacred and the secular. But what Taylor means by... Uh, secularism is more of a worldview that, that begins to seep into the culture and then it becomes the lens through which the majority of people in that culture begin to see reality. And they, they don't know that they're seeing through this lens. It's not like a, an awareness thing. It's just the new normal, it's just the way things are. When you go, how do people see things like that? How do they, they look at the world and come up with those conclusions? And that's just simply, the, to them, they're, they're going, what are you talking about? It's just the way the world is. James K.A. Smith, who's another philosopher, he defines secularism this way. He says, secularism is a way of constructing meaning and significance without any reference to the divine or the transcendent. So you got a bunch of people that are trying to define reality, trying to define themselves, but God's nowhere in the picture, right? So we're experiencing a society that is characterized by that. People building, trying to build an identity and a reality without any reference to God whatsoever. And so... What you have when you take God out of the picture is self. So self is sovereign and life becomes just simply a blank canvas for the individual to, to express themselves, to paint whatever they want and say, that's me. That's, that's our society. And so as a result, today we are doing church out of season, so to speak. This is an out of season season. 
in America. And much like the church addressed here in the book of Hebrews, our whole culture is becoming increasingly hostile to Jesus and the church. It's not that they just simply go, okay, I'm just going to ignore them. They actually find hostility towards the people of God. And the results are beginning to show every denomination in our nation is declining significantly in numbers. We have an entire generation of young people who have designated themselves as the nuns. That's not like nuns as in Catholic nuns. That's nuns as in N-O-N-E-S, nothing stating that we have zero religious affiliation. When they check the box, what is your religious affiliation? They check none. A lot of these people are, are young people that actually grew up in the church, but now they're going, nope, none. And doing church out of season, when you're in a, a culture like that, it is exhausting, isn't it? It's exhausting, it's draining, and it's frustrating, mainly because we no longer know what to do in this cultural climate. It's astounding uh, what you, you read out there and see in podcasts of so many people going, man, we, we don't even know what to do anymore. Because what used to work no longer does. But the greatest danger is not what is happening on the outside of the church. It's what's happening on the inside. Because it seems more and more people in the church are losing their first love. They're losing their passion. Oh, they're busy. Oh, they're theologically correct. They've just kind of lost that first love. And what we find here in Hebrews 13 is, is something of, of a call to restore. This is a, 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 a church that in many, many ways is experiencing a culture, though very different in a lot of ways, very similar in a whole lot of ways as well. And, and these are people who are worn out. These are people on the edge of becoming nuns, or at least returning to their Jewish faith. I'm not sure which is worse. So what do they do? Verse 8 says this, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, if Jesus hasn't changed, then, then perhaps there is a reality of how to be the people of God that doesn't change either, in season or out of season, as Jesus never changes with the seasons, and he doesn't, then his strategy doesn't change either. And what is that strategy? It's love. It's love. It always has been. It's love. It's preaching a gospel of love. We do not need a new strategy. We do not need a new program. We need to return to our first love. And so that's what we find in this passage. We find all of these these different areas of life that we're called to let love flourish. This gospel that we believe is supposed to produce in us a certain way that we live, but that way that we live is not just simply, you know, we think of terms of going, well, if I'm a follower of Jesus, you know, and I want to get radical, maybe I need to go to some place in, in the other parts of the world as a missionary. But what we find here is that our missionary task is first and foremost in our everyday life. It's the way we live every, every single day. You wake up tomorrow morning, you're on mission. Right where you're at. And the, way we, the best way to do mission is to love. So first up, first up, he says this, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now, I, if you've been in church for 
any significant time. I'm sure that at some point you have been made aware that in the Greek language there are several different words that are translated love. Right? We all, we're all pretty much familiar with that. You got eros, you got agape. Agape is the, the highest form of, of love and it's the one that's used the most in scriptures. But what we find in this section, interestingly enough, is a different form of love. What we find in this section is phileo. Phileo, um, it's, it's kind of street-level love. Right? It, it, it has more to do with the affections. It's, it, it, it's familial. It's, it's, it's a family kind of love. It's, it's translated as brotherly love. You got the, 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 the uh, city of Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. Philo, Philadelphia. It's the kind of love that soldiers who have fought together have for one another. Just an affection. Phileo uh, is, is not exclusive to Christians. Uh, Unbelievers can also experience phileo love, but, but non-Christians, even though they can experience, they can't experience it in the same way. Because when phileo love is baptized by the Holy Spirit and informed by the gospel, well, that's a whole different ballgame. It creates something beyond this world. So in other words, anyone can have phileo love, but, but Christians do it better, Right? At least we're supposed to do it better because it's driven by a desire to please and honor God. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit and, and it is all about uh, being God-centered. It's a God-centered passion and affection that works up within us. And so the first application that we see of such love is in the church. Let brotherly love, that's phileo, one word, brotherly love, let it continue let it continue. Now, the command here is not to develop it, is it? He doesn't say, uh, you need to start loving one another brotherly with a phileo kind of love. He doesn't say that. He's, he says, no, let it continue, which means it already exists. So the command is, is to keep it going. Don't let it grow cold. Keep it a priority. Put building strong relationships in the body of the church as a huge priority. Make it a measure of your success, which is kind of a funny way to say it because you can't really measure it. We, we, we do success by what you can measure, but this is a whole kind of different reality. And whether you're in season or out of season, do this. Let it continue. Don't let the season determine your love. We need warm, life-giving friendship among one another. Maybe even more so out of season. In the secular age, relationships are the, the product uh, of a utility basis. In, in other words, our relationships in the world are based on their utility purpose. How can this person here help me to achieve my goals? Or is this person going to get in the way of helping me to obtain my goals? And if so, then I don't, I don't need them in my, my life. They're useless to me. But brotherly love in the church, man, that's a whole different, whole different reality. As Christians, as believers in Christ, we see the value of one another, not for what we can do for one another, but as brothers and sisters in the same family who are loved equally by God. We don't look at one another and say, what have you done for me lately? The church is about practicing the presence of people. And that's, I think it's a lost art these days. There's this children's movie called uh, Extinct. 
came out in 2021. Anybody seen it? Yeah, okay. It was a popular movie, obviously. Well, it came out in 2021. It features these, these creatures called flummels. Flummels, if you look them up, are kind of like these little fuzzy donuts uh, people. Uh, well, not people, but, but these, these, these creatures, right? And, and they find out that their species is going to go extent, uh, extinct in the future. Uh, and, and so they discover a, a way to travel in time into the future so that they can stop what's going to happen to cause them to become extinct. So in, in the end... All right, I know you're probably going to go home and watch it this afternoon. So just, just a bit of a, of a heads up. Um, they end up in Shanghai, all right? They end up in Shanghai, and when they get there, they go through this time machine. They're in the future in Shanghai, and there's a dog, and they ask the dog, where are we? Where are we? And the dog says this. This is profound. The dog says, a better question is, when are we? When are we? Who talks like that? When are we? That's a strange question. And yet, when, when, I, when I think about when are we, I think, what a profound question that is. When are we? Am I primarily in the past Am I primarily living in the past, focused on things that I can't change? Or am I constantly living in some hopeful, preferred, alternative future? Always dreaming about a different reality? Or am I present to the now? Because this is really, right now, this is the only time, this now is the only time that we have. When am I? Is a great question. Maybe one we should start asking ourselves. When am I? Is it only when I am, it is only when I am present to the moment that I can learn to be present to other people when I'm here. Otherwise, I, I will see people as a means or an obstacle to my future or, or maybe someone who maybe can or cannot help me fix my past. Let brotherly love continue is, is addressing the now. The now. Brotherly love is, is now. It's in the present. It, it, it helps us to be our true selves in the now. And, and in such a community, in a church like that, man, you don't have anything to prove. We don't have to create some kind of false spiritual self in order to be accepted by a bunch of other people who are presenting a, a false spiritual self. True spirituality is not being something that we're not for the sake of others. That's not spiritual in the least, right? It is being sons and daughters who may be messy, but who are in Christ. Right? It's not about identity formation, because my identity has already been formed in Christ. This is the kind of community uh, that the gospel forms. This is what Ray Ortland calls a gospel culture. Listen to what Ortland says. He says, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. A doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. In other words, preach the gospel in order to create a gospel culture. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. In other words, man, we, if I stand up here week in, week out, preach the gospel, but it doesn't create a certain kind of culture in the midst of our church, then it's pointless. So the church is a, a community of brothers and sisters who have warm affection for one another. It's just, it, the church is not a gathering of random people. 
It, it is a people who are gathered together. We have all kinds of differences from one another, but we have one common denominator, and that's that we are the beloved of God in Christ. Church is not something you go to. Church is not something you attend. It is a family that you're part of. And every member of the family matters. Every, every single one. It's the place where love is to abound. And the gospel creates a family culture because we're all sinners saved by grace. You see how this works? Right? None of us is better than anyone else. It's what the gospel informs us of. We're all uh, a group of really messy saints declared righteous by God, which is as stunning to, to us as it is to the world. Jesus said this, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's the sign, right? He doesn't say by this, all people know you're my disciples if you have incredibly precise doctrine. That's important, but it's not the main thing. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have some incredible programs in your church or you have a lot of workers serving or you have awesome programs no. The one tell sign is if you love one another. Francis Schaeffer, the great Schaeffer, said this in his book, A Mark of a Christian. He says, Through the centuries, men have displayed many different symbols to show that they are Christians. They've worn crosses on their lapels, their coats, they've hung chains around their necks, they've even had special haircuts. I don't know about that one, but apparently... But, but there's, there's a much better sign. It's a universal mark that is to last through all the ages of the church until Jesus comes back. And that mark, of course, is love. All people know you're my disciples if, if you have love for one another. See, the if is conditional. Jesus was, was known for his love right? He loved us when we least deserved it. He loved us while we were yet sinners. Uh, not when we got our act together. And he said, you know, if you do this, then people know you're, you're, you're part of my group. Because of who I am, the disciple was always recognized by their rabbi. I saw this horrendous video this week uh, of, of a 19-year-old girl uh, who was singing on stage at, at church. And uh, apparently between the services, there's this older woman who follows her to the bathroom. She's got her phone, this young girl, so she's recording this whole thing. And this, this lady, this church lady, this older church lady, uh, began to tell her that she was fat. And she was too fat to be on stage. That she was an embarrassment. She had no business being on stage. And she shouldn't be wearing shorts if she's going to be on stage being that fat. Well, this 19-year-old girl is... is, is filming this and she's she's bawling and she says at one point and she's on you know on the stage so she's obviously connected to this church and she says I will never come to this church again one lady one lady one church lady destroys a life by a lack of love I don't know if that lady ever knew the gospel, but if she did, she didn't believe it. And that showed by how she treated a, a fellow believer. Richard Plass, in a very, very, very influential, good book called The Relational Soul, uh, put it like this. He said, sadly, some have had a very different experience in community. Rather than a transformation of soul, they have experienced a deformation of soul. They entered a community hoping to find home, a home of unconditional love, but what they found was a self-righteous, self-protective, self-promoting reality. If this has been your experience, we are truly sorry. 
but the fact that communities often fail to live into what the gospel makes possible is no reason to reject community. The emergence of one true self depends on the community life we live in. It is critical that we find a good church so that our true self can flourish. There's so much more involved than going, oh, I'm going to find me a church that's got, it's got some good music and, and uh, you know, it's got a, an entertaining sermon that's short. And, uh, <laughs> man, it, 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 if your ability to flourish has more to do with the community that you're a part of, uh, that should be the main thing. The church needs to be a shelter from the world, not a spiritualized version of it. We don't hurt. We're not to hurt one another. We're to bring, we're a community of healing one another. And that requires we enter into another person's pain. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. One of the, in my opinion, one of the greatest uh, uh, albums of all time is, is Johnny Cash Live at Folsom Prison. We got a Johnny Cash representative here this morning. There you go, John. <laughs> Namesake, right? John, Johnny. And uh, Johnny Cash, uh, he was a bit of an outlaw himself, you know. He had a way of connecting to those whose, whose sins ended up getting them locked up in jail. He basically saw nothing different than himself because uh, he had spent a little time in jail uh, himself. And, and, uh, and he was that kind of guy. It was a great album. But I think this command is, is different than that. It's, it's different than a call to be like Johnny Cash. Uh, those in prison, when he says, uh, make sure that you remember those in prison, those in prison are, 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 are not uh, simply outside people that are, that are in prison. He's not talking about a prison ministry, even though that's great. But what he's talking about specifically is people in the church. He's talking about Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith in Jesus. Uh, those who have been mistreated. Because of Jesus. Uh, he's saying have solidarity with the oppressed and victims of injustice that you, that you go to church with. In fact, we see that in Hebrews 10, verse 34, when it says, You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that your, yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So, uh, obviously, that's not nothing that we go, okay, well, well, none of us are in prison because of our faith. But to apply the spirit of the command to our context is still relevant, right? Because we can still show brotherly love when we enter into another person's prison. Now, that prison may be addiction. It may be a chronic illness. It may be a, a trauma. It may be emotional stress or depression. And we can enter. Don't, don't forget those people. He says we, we, can, we can enter into their pain. We can suffer alongside of them. And the key here is, is empathy. It says as though you were in prison with them. And if this is your brother and sister, then what happens to them and what they're suffering through should affect all of us. And we must put ourselves in their shoes. We must feel what they feel. We must use our, our, our sanctified imaginations to imagine what that would be like to go through what they're going through instead of judging. Besides, the fact is we've all been wounded in one way or another. We've all had our own prisons at some point. We all have. And so we need to allow our, our own woundedness to make us wounded healers towards others instead of making us bitter. 
even if they brought the pain on themselves. Because that's what we have the tendency to do. Well, they wouldn't have been in this situation if they'd stopped doing this, if they would have done that. They brought it on themselves. Well, it's not like we haven't been there and done that. We are, we are, <laughs> we are all our own worst enemies. Our job is not to curse the darkness, but to shine a light. Because that's what we would want if it was us. But our, our love is not just simply to be expressed inside the walls of the church, but also to those who are outside, who are not believers yet. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. <laughs> I love that. Right? How we treat strangers is an indication of how we understand the gospel. Now check this out. The word for hospitality in the Greek is a compound word. All right? The first word is phileo. Right? Love. The other word is strangers. So hospitality literally means love strangers. That is literally what the word means. We tend to think of hospitality as dinner with, with one another, dinner with fellow Christians, but actually it is expressed towards outsiders, towards the stranger. Jesus told a parable uh, of the Good Samaritan to illustrate, I think, what hospitality is to be like. And, and he did so in response to a Pharisee who asked the question, Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Love your neighbor. Well, let's kind of qualify that. And Jesus tells of a man who's been robbed and left in a ditch as though he were dead. Right? And so there's two different religious dudes who, who come along on their way to doing their religious duties. Dudes doing religious duties. And so both are not wanting to take time out from their religious duties to, to risk dealing with this guy. And besides, he's a, he's, he, he could be a Samaritan, we don't know. But we, we also know that he's, he's, he appears to be dead, which makes him unclean. Therefore, if you touch him, you can no longer do your religious duties. And so what they do? Well, they pass by the wounded man. They did nothing. Then a Samaritan comes along, Jesus says. A Samaritan, a Samaritan, right? Samaritan, they don't even get their worship right. What do you mean a Samaritan? They don't do anything right. They don't even do religion right. Nevertheless, he stops, and even though the man is a complete stranger to him, he bandages his wounds, he gets him food, he gets him a place to stay, he takes care of the bill. Because that's true religion. And you talk about some missional implications. If people are not going to come to our church in the midst of the out-of-season reality because people aren't just streaming to church right now, perhaps we can start by inviting them over for dinner. Secular people don't want to be preached at, so we've got to be a little more subversive. Rosaria, uh, uh, Rosaria Butterfield said this in a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, radically ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Radically ordinary hospitality characterizes those who don't fuss over different worldviews represented at the dinner table. The truly hospitable aren't embarrassed to keep friendships with people who are different. Let God use your home, your apartment, your dorm room, your front yard, your community gymnasium, your garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Because that is the point. Building the church and living like a family. The family of God. And I love the motive here. I love the motive he gives. Because you could be entertaining angels unaware. Now, if that sounds far-fetched, just read the story of Abraham and Lot, Genesis 18 and 19. Right? they got these strangers who visit them. Abraham shows hospitality. He fires up the barbecue. Turns out they were angels. 
right there in the scripture. So the point is, is that there are more to people than meets the eye. Right? The person you show hospitality to, you never know. Right? Could be an angel. But probably, probably not. But here's the reality. They could be a whole lot more than an angel. They may be a future saint of God. They may be destined to serve as priests and kings in the very presence of the living God who are now being prepared for their glorious raiment. Didn't Hebrews, Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You go, man, there could be angels. Well, the point of an angel is to serve the saints. Could be a saint. Could be a future saint. So we, 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 we see love applied in church relationships. We see uh, love applied in unchurched relationships. And next we see it applied to, to marriage in the home. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. How is love displayed in marriage? He says, by honoring it and keeping it undefiled. Phileo, love in marriage, is seen in keeping the, the home fires warm. Marriage is an institution. It's the first institution established by God. And it becomes both a building block for the church and a society. When a society's marriages start falling apart, you can bet on the fact that that society is going to follow suit. And healthy marriages create healthy churches. And so in our sexually confused culture, gospel-formed marriages send a strong message to the world and they build healthy church cultures at the same time. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to the wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. In other words, what he's saying is your marriages look like Jesus and the church. That is the message they give to the world. Paul says the purpose of Christian marriage is to display that. Ray Ortland Jr., uh, who I quoted earlier, I love this quote. He says, I apologize for putting this so bluntly, but it's in the Bible. We need to face it. How can we hope to be true to Christ if we look away from the Bible's stark betrayal of our natural corruption? The Bible alerts us that a blasphemous attitude lurks in all of our hearts. We, we, we tell ourselves, what's the big deal about this or that compromise? He'll understand. He's all about grace, right? But what man would say, what's the big deal about my wife's adulteries? It's only marriage. Understand, it's all about grace. In the same way, our divine husband does not think, well, she brought another lover into our bed, but as long as they let me sleep, what's the big deal? The thought is revolting. The love of Jesus is sacred. He gives all and he demands all because he's a good husband. Only an exclusive love is real love. Only a cleansing grace is real grace. Would we even desire a grace that did not cleanse us for, for Christ? So if the gospel informs our marriage, it means uh, it's going to require a lot of grace, a lot of forgiveness, and a lot of perseverance. So we have these Three relationships so far where we're called to allow our phileo love to flourish. In the church between brothers and sisters, in the world between strangers, and in the home towards our spouses. And next week we'll see it applied towards leaders in the church. But now the writer of Hebrews is going to give us a contrast. He ends with a contrast. Money. Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now check this out. The Greek word 
translated here as love for money is one word. It, again, it's a compound word. Uh, a phila gyros. Do you hear one of the words that might be familiar to you? Well, here again, you see the word phileo, which is the word for, for love, uh, uh, having affections for. But here it is combined with the word gyros, which is the Greek word for silver. So the A at the beginning of the word is, is a negation, which refers to its negative opposite. So basically the word means don't have warm affections for silver. That's what it means. So do you see that he's using this same word over and over and over, but he's just applying it in different ways. So the gospel, what happens with the gospel is the gospel reorders our loves. What we love is what we place the highest value on. What we place the highest value on is what we serve. What we give our time, attention, thoughts, and desires to. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think one of the, maybe one of the hardest places we have time investing uh, or, or inviting God into is, is, our, is our finances, right? We, we love our money. At least we love what it can buy and the security it makes us feel like we have. And uh, we, we may not love what we have. We may wish that we had more so that we could have those things. Still loving money. But uh, there's just this reality of going, God, you can have everything in my life except this, except this. I, I remember reading years ago about during the Crusades that uh, you had these soldiers who were being baptized. And, and uh, as they were being baptized, they would take their swords and they would hold it up out of the water. So they would go under, immersed, and... They would hold up their swords. And it was a way of saying, uh, you can have all of me, but not this part of me. There's one part of me that remains unbaptized. And I used to laugh at that, and I think, man, how many times did we do the same thing? But what do we hold out? You know, what do we hold out? And I think in our culture, it's like, here's my wallet. You can have all of me, but not that. Everything, Lord, except this. Except this. He says, no, you can, you can stop loving money. How? By being content with what you have. See, a lack of contentment is looking at what you have and saying, uh, oh, well, this is, this is great, but what I really need to be happy is more. Is more. If I could just have this, if I could just afford this, if I could do this, whatever this is for you. But you're not content. By contrast, contentment says that I have all I need in Christ to be happy. Right? I, I, the Lord will never leave me nor forsake me. And he's all I ever need. Money can't say that. Right? Money can't say that. We're, we're uh, one major unexpected expense away from watching our money leave us, All right? Just ask Jim about uh, our air conditioning issues and the cost that just out of nowhere sucks you dry. We are, we are one extravagant purchase away thinking that this is what we need to be happy, and then we discover that it, 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 it has forsaken us because we're not any more happier than we were when we didn't have it. Jesus told a parable about this. He said in Luke 12, uh, there was a land of a rich man uh, produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger ones. 
And there I'll store up my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is this the one who lays... So is the one who lays up treasures for himself but is not rich towards God. So it, it sounds like Jesus foresaw the American dream. The sin that is described here is not having money. The sin is storing it up and never giving it away. It, it's building bigger barns when your neighbor has no barn at all. The way of Jesus is like this, 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the way of Jesus. Jeremiah Burroughs, in his great book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, says, Your worship, you worship God more by contentment than when you come to hear a sermon. Or spend half an hour or an hour in prayer. Or when you come to receive a sacrament. These are only external acts of worship. But contentment is in the soul. It's the soul's worship to subject itself thus to God. By being pleased with who God is. And what he has given you and what he does. Arthur Pink adds this. He says contentment is the product of the heart resting in God. It is the blessed assurance that God does all things well and is even now making all things work together for my ultimate good. Satan tempted Jesus by offering to give him all the kingdoms of the world. You can have all this, all this splendor. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. It's interesting that riches and the devil kind of go together. And so Jesus responded to Satan, it is written, worship the Lord and serve him only. I love that, right? We worship and serve what we value. And he's going, I value God way more than any of the riches of this entire world. What good is it to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Jesus says, no thanks to the worst offer ever. And I said, man, let's be like that. Let's be like that. And then we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 6. This is the key that unlocks the entirety of the whole passage. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? On our own... We can do none of these things. On our own, we can never love others passionately. We can never love compassionately. We have to do it all with the Lord's help. That's what he says. The Lord is my helper. We will never be hospitable. We will never care about other people without the Lord's help. We are naturally selfish. Right? We will not stop breaking our vows. We will not stop loving money until we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. If I can't save myself, which I can't, and neither can you, then we can't sanctify ourselves either. Right? We need the grace of God from first to last. We need it constantly. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that sustains us every day. We need the whole gospel in order to have a whole life. The one thing that sabotages our love, I think more than anything else, is not hatred. It's not jealousy. It's not anger. The one thing that sabotages our ability to love more than anything else is fear. Fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. We don't feel like we can be our true selves around one another because we fear rejection and judgment. We don't, we don't open up our, our lives to strangers because we fear. I invite them into my house, they rob me blind. We don't enter into other people's pain 
because we fear that if we do so, that it's going to drain us and we just don't have time for this. We fear spouses are going to leave us. Fear, fear, fear. But there's a defiance here, isn't it? If the Lord is my helper, he says, I will not fear. It's defiance. I'm not going to fear because I have the Lord. It's a refusal to let fear win. I will not fear. I will not take the, the risk of, of getting hurt. Right? All of that is out the window. That's fear. No, fear flips the risk factor. I will take the risk. I will take the risk of loving others because the Lord is my helper. And he will never leave me. And he will never forsake me, which frees me up to love others. Because even if they leave me, even if they forsake me, even if they don't reciprocate my love, I am loved anyway. Amen. So I might get burned. I might get burned again, but that's not going to stop me. The Bible says this, love never fails. Love never fails. And we think that it will. That's why we fear. We don't believe it. But it says it never fails. Think about that. You can't fail if you love. It doesn't fail. The church cannot fail if it loves. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to produce the results you want. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're going to have reciprocating love back to you. But what it means is that the point is the love, not the result. Love never fails. You go, well, that love didn't create the desire I wanted. The desire you wanted is not the point. Just love. Love never fails. And where do we learn to love? We learn to love because we are loved by Jesus. We love, it says, because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, while we didn't love Jesus, he died and loved us. He died so that we might be turned from lovers of self into lovers of God and lovers of people. And so Paul says to Timothy, man, I know it's hard. I know it's hard right now. Preach the word. In season, out of season. Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. Remind them of the love of God. That's how you're going to get people to love again. That's how it works. The gospel doesn't change at any point. The gospel doesn't change when it's not working. It works even when it appears that it's not working. Love one another. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Father, how you have uh, taken this, this 12 chapters of pointing us to Jesus and his greatness and his love and his beauty and his perfection and his greatness and for 12 chapters you just show us Jesus and then we get these practical instructions about loving one another that's not a disconnect it's not going oh and then there's this it's the result of the other 12 chapters it's the result of beholding the beauty of Christ and in him finding all the satisfaction we ever need. We don't need to be satisfied by the approval of others. Therefore, we can have brotherly love. We don't need to fear the stranger. Therefore, we can love. We don't need to find uh, our, our satisfaction and some relationship that isn't sanctioned by our vows. 
Therefore, we're free to love. We don't find our satisfaction by money or the things that it can buy. Therefore, we're free to love. So, Father, I ask now that as we begin to really finish up this series, Lord, that it comes to becoming more than simply in a series, but it comes a way of life, that it gets down and creeps into our soul. It becomes our worldview, our age, the lens we see things through, this gospel. Father, if there's anybody here today who's never trusted in Christ, I pray that, Lord, today would be the day of salvation, and they would come, and today they would be received on Father's Day by a Heavenly Father. It would be a gift to you, and it would be just a joy to see Father, I pray that you would work uh, all things for the purpose of this moment, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet.